0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, it's Amara. Welcome to the TransLash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. We all woke up to the horror of October 7th and day by day since then have experienced the mind-blowing, excruciating, and bewildering weeks which have followed. Oftentimes, what's happening escapes the proper words to capture it all. And with the U.S.'s veto of a Security Council resolution calling for an end to the killing in Gaza, the shock and pain look set to continue with no end in sight. Understandably, one of the hardest things to do at a time like this is to actually listen. I know many of our listeners, like me, have watched countless videos from across social media, but often these are just a couple of minutes in length. That's why we wanted to make space here, as we do on so many topics for in-depth conversations, to get a sense of the direct impact of the war in Gaza, as well as how it has impacted others in indirect, but no less poignant ways and we are creating space for trans voices so often left out of the current conversation to be centered. First, I'm joined by chef and advocate Marcel Lafram, who shares his experience as a Palestinian American since the events of October 7th.
1: I woke up to probably about 200 text messages, and I read the group chat from my siblings first. I started to violently shake, I think,
0: we knew exactly what was going to unfold. Next I'll talk with magazine writer and author Jamie Lauren Kalis about why he resigned from the New York Times magazine over the company's coverage of the war in Gaza. The things
2: that I were seeing as like objective truths were just getting to be further and further from what the institution would allow
0: to be written about,
2: and I just thought it was like becoming an impediment to doing quality work.
0: But before we get to these difficult but important conversations, we're going to start out, as always, with some trans joy. Now, as a reminder, joy may seem like a strange place to start today's podcast. But as I've said on this program before, joy is not unfettered delight driven by external circumstances. Rather, it is something that we create in spite of what's going on in the world around us. And it is an essential part of our survival, especially when it's driven by the arts. Poetry can be a powerful source of comfort and meaning. This is especially true in the midst of suffering and violence. George Abraham is a Palestinian American poet, performance artist, and writer whose work grapples with interlocking experiences of displacement and belonging. Their writing has appeared in Poetry Magazine, Guernica, and the Paris Review. Their debut poetry collection, Birthright, won the Arab American Book Award amongst other honors. George is also the co-editor of a forthcoming Palestinian poetry anthology from Haymarket Books. Here they are to tell us more.
3: Art forces us to think on a very long time scale. The metaphor that comes to mind is the sedimentary metaphor. I mean, like rock cycles, how rocks form over thousands and thousands of years. Um, there's something beautiful about... Art forcing us to think long-term and away from the immediate and think into an unimaginable future. Here's an excerpt from my poetry book, Birthright, from a poem titled Adaptation Portraits. A truth about our bodies, the limbic system, control center for emotion and memory, is named from the Latin limbus, meaning border, meaning Every memory is a border drawn in limbs, meaning this is where I am defined and so my gender must live there, at a border always on the verge of bursting, to ask for a framework for understanding our bodies that doesn't rely on borders and the implicit binaries therein. Let me disrespect your language with my being. Every man has betrayed and untranslated me in the same way this country has.
0: George Abraham, you are trans joy. I'm grateful to be chatting today with Palestinian, Arab, and Assyrian American chef and advocate, Marcel Afram. From his home base in Washington, D.C., Marcel is passionate about celebrating his Palestinian roots through cuisine. He launched the pop-up dining concept, Shababi, in 2021, where he paid homage to his first-generation immigrant experience. But his advocacy doesn't stop at delicious food. Marcel is a founding coalition member of Hospitality for Humanity, a Palestinian-led group coming together with allies in a call of action for Gaza. He's also partnered with humanitarian organizations like the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East to raise funds and break down walls of misinformation. Marcel was recently honored for his culinary leadership as part of the 2021 Middle East Policy Council 40 Under 40 cohort. He's also a 2023 Rami Rising Culinary Star winner and one of Washington City Papers 2021 People of the Year. Marcel, thank you so much for joining me. Amara, thank you so much for having me. Truly an honor. Yeah, I just wish that we could be doing it over some of your famous chicken. (laughs) One day, Inshallah. One day, inshallah. So I just think, you know, it's really important at moments like this to realize beyond the headlines the impact of everything that's going on on actual people. But like everyone else, you know, your connection to what's going on starts with your own personal story. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us about the first time you realized that you were... Palestinian, and that that had an ethnic identity. And the reason why I think about that is that people often talk about that there was a first time that they realized they had a quote, ethnic close quote identity that for them, what was different for other people was just natural for them. And then there was some point in the world where they realized that they were something other than what everyone else was. And I'm wondering for you, what that was, or when it was.
1: Uh, this is such a beautiful question, honestly, and what a way to phrase it. I uh, grew up very close to my paternal grandfather. My parents uh, worked almost all the time when I was younger, so he helped raise me, and he talked about the homeland all of the time, and I really just was so mesmerized by his stories of Palestine And so I understood from a very young age, these Palestinian roots. I didn't understand how I stood in that identity until I was about in the third grade and my parents chose to take me out of the public school system and put me in a Catholic school. I was partially really excited as a young person. My family is Syriac Orthodox Christian. uh, So we are a minority of Christians within the Middle East. And I was like, wow, I get this opportunity to talk to these people about this thing that I am. And once being introduced into what I thought was going to be a broad base of knowledge amongst these very young people was the complete opposite. And that's when my Palestinian existence, as I talked about it amongst my peers at probably around eight years old, kind of was thrown back to me in a maybe the first understanding of a bigoted way. So I'd have to say I was probably around eight years old in that experience of transitioning into a Catholic school system.
0: Where is your family from? And what is a story from your grandfather which stands out to you to this day?
1: So my grandparents were in the Nakba in 1948, in which hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were displaced uh, during the creation of the State of Israel. My father's family fled to Damascus, Syria, and my mother's family fled to Beirut, Lebanon, in which my parents were born, respectively, before they came here in the 1970s to the States. My ancestral families have roots in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Beit Jalla, which is a very predominantly Arab-Christian population in what's now occupied Palestine.
0: And you said that you grew up on stories from your grandfather, what were those stories like or what did they pertain to or what did they evoke in your imagination as a child? So he was the best storyteller. I
1: would quite literally just sit in the car with him and ask him to tell me story after story after story. And one of my most favorite things about him was, and this is just, he to me is one of the most brilliant people I'd ever known in my life. He was illiterate for most of his life, but such an entrepreneur I suppose he must have been around 22 years old when he established a tour bus company based out of Bethlehem. And he would gather these tourists and take them not just throughout Palestine, but also to areas of Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and Egypt. And the story that's my most favorite, which actually inspired Shababi, the concept, is he would tell me about you know his most prideful moment outside of taking people to these historical sites in this beautiful vast land was having them stop at these roadside chicken zarb, which are essentially barbecue pits that are made out of oil cans that people would makeshift these oil cans and put grates in them with charcoal on the bottom and roast these chickens. And he would take his people on tour with him to these pit stops and that's what he would feed them. And honestly, he compared every chicken for the rest of his life, you know, until almost 60 years later, until he passed to those chickens from the zarb stands uh, on the roadsides of
0: Palestine. It's so interesting because I was hoping (laughs) that you were going to connect a story to food and Palestinian identity. And the reason why I say that is because Everyone I know who is Palestinian (laughs) links so much of their identity to food (laughs) and to the connection to the food tradition that you all have as a culture. And here I thought we were about to hear a story about tourist buses, but we ended up in a recollection about food. (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can have multiple conversations about all of the food stories that I heard growing up that so seriously... (laughs) Just created this person that I am today,
0: yeah, and it's so funny that like inadvertently he helped give you what what is now your your famous chicken a start. being anything hyphenated American is complicated, but being Arab American, especially over the last you know twenty years especially, has been an uneven landscape to put it politely. And with that as a backdrop, I'm just wondering for you when you woke up on October 7th and heard about the Hamas attack, what was the first thing through your mind? I
1: woke up to probably about 200 text messages and I read the group chat from my siblings first. I started to violently shake I think we knew exactly what was going to unfold. It was a feeling that was very reminiscent to understanding the consequences of 9-11 before they took place. We just kind of felt it in my bones, you know? Nobody had to explain it to me. I I mean, just to go back on that 9-11 bit a bit, I was a senior in high school when that happened, sitting there watching it unfold on TV in my morning classes And, you know, I didn't have to wait to go home for my father to explain the caution and the fear of what was about to unfold for us as a people. You know, I felt it. I I felt it in my entity. It was almost as if the (sighs) souls of the ancestors who have been running and trying to protect us from all of this persecution that has unfolded throughout their lifetimes and through generations and that we witnessed in various ways now about to happen. And it was uh, terrifying in the sense that I was really terrified for my people.
0: When did you have a sense that the response by the Israeli government was going to be different than it had been before. And what I mean by that is that, of course, this attack by Hamas is totally unprecedented, but there had been attacks before on and off. And normally there's this strategy that the Israeli army um, and armed forces take using literally their own language. This is not any other language than theirs, called, quote, mowing the lawn, close quote, where there's an attack and then they respond with usually a bombing campaign, artillery, some other things. And then there's a ceasefire. And then, you know, some years normally of um, the status quo ante, of there being a, a standoff. But I'm wondering for you, when did you have a sense that it this wasn't, sounds like it was immediate, but I just want to give a chance to clarify that this wasn't going to be the, the normal, quote, mowing the lawn, close quote, that this was going to be somehow something wholly different.
1: I think we've always been waiting for that other shoe to drop. We have been holding our breaths in the most terrifying way, uh, at least my entire life. And I know that I can speak for my parents and my grandparents and my elders that I've gotten to know in my lifetime, that we've been waiting for Israel to take their opportunity at this moment. What has been unfolding for the past 75 years has been a chokehold on the land that we are allowed to occupy in our own space. And it's been getting smaller and smaller and smaller and I think we've always, at least for myself, we're just kind of been sitting on the edge of our seat in anticipation, waiting to see in what form uh, that state is was planning on ascending on the current population and uh, the land that we do still have in the region. It was immediate. It absolutely was immediate. And it wasn't surprising, sadly. Either.
0: What do you say to the Israeli response that hey, you know, if Hamas hadn't come across the fence and committed this mass atrocity, that this wouldn't have happened. And so this other shoe dropping is the is on that organization.
1: To say that the field is even is feeding into the propaganda machine that has had a monopoly on uh, the worldview and the worldview of the autonomy of the Palestinian people. The Palestinian people have been subjugated to relentless mass murder, You know, cut off of essential resources. For decades. You know, we're talking about almost 100 years of people who have been living in an apartheid, oppressive regime. And to say that people within living under those conditions aren't going to try to find a way to release themselves of that chokehold is an ignorant sentiment and in a lot of ways setting them up for their own failure. I would say that To say that this is a direct retaliation specifically for the events that occurred on October 7th would be short-sighted without understanding that many of the people for the past 17 years in Gaza alone have seen five vicious bombardments by the Israeli government. I think that there is a bigger picture here and not necessarily a complicated one either in which people who have their resources cut off, who don't have access, who don't have autonomy, who don't have self-determination, who don't have an understanding of what their daily life is going to look like because it's controlled by a government that is not willing to give them basic resources of life. Those things are really important to understand because... Ultimately, people are going to want to fight for their freedom.
0: When did you have a sense that once you understood that this response was going to be different, that you had to step up your advocacy for Palestinian Americans? When did you decide or know, okay, we're going to have to be doing something different in terms of protesting, in terms of speaking out, in terms of however you saw it. And are you surprised by the broad-based nature of of people speaking out, both here and around the world, as a Palestinian American? Are you surprised by what you're seeing? Uh, there was so much grief, so much grief, so
1: much inability to sleep to do the daily routines, to function, to eat. I would say I was bedridden for a few days. I I was felt so much, you know, it's, you watch your, your people on the screen and, and granted, I, 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 I imagine that I would feel this way and I do feel this way whenever I see people suffering in general. Right. So it's not, but especially when you see yourself, and your own people, and your history, and your land being demolished. I suppose that there's just an inability to function, right? Uh, Especially feeling hopeless. Most immediately, there was a sense of hopelessness. I couldn't get out of bed for long periods of time. I'd say for the first five or six days, I just really didn't know what to do with myself. And then it was probably about day six, and I... Found myself on the fetal in a fetal position on my bed, just in tears, screaming. And uh I really got a lot out in that moment, you know? And um I think I woke up. Something just came over me. And I just sat straight up in bed. And I was like, okay, what now? And coincidentally, and I don't know if this is specific maybe to stages of grief, right? That might be an explanation as to why I feel like many of us in the diaspora came together at such a similar time. Uh, I started reaching out immediately about uh, what we can be doing from an actionable perspective. And the most obvious thing for me in the moment was to connect to my colleagues in the culinary industry, in the food world, and we started having some really real conversations, and within those conversations, other people started to join who are allies. And you know, within our assembling of this coalition, Hospitality for Humanity, which really was the first action that I kind of jumped into alongside Rima Seal and Omar Anani, who are also Palestinian chefs leading this coalition here in the States we started to see this greater movement rise amongst the people internationally, right? Just as you mentioned. And I think that as we've seen other movements that have fought apartheid regimes, right? Like in South Africa, we've seen a lot of people just outraged by the atrocity first and foremost. But I think a lot of us are outraged by this tool of capitalism and Money and power that controls this world that all of us function under and is utilized to mass murder people, to keep people oppressed in so many natures. And I think that there's a connection to our collective liberation. And I believe that many are joining this allyship in the call for freedom in Palestine because it, it requires everybody for all of our freedom.
0: One of the places where the conversation about what's happening is most ferocious is online. It's become almost an information battlefront in and of itself, to use that word, of course, not equivalent to the actual one, but one where there is a lot of attacks and violent talk and a whole host of things that have been taking place since October 7th. And one of the things that we, of course, have seen is that anyone who's LGBTQ, but in your case, people who are trans, who speak up, who speak up on behalf of the Palestinian people, one of the attacks that comes across is, well, why are you saying anything anyway? Because if you were in the region, if you were born there, then you wouldn't have been allowed to exist. You would have been killed or you would have been fill in the blank as a way to shut down and dismiss the conversation. And I'm wondering how you experienced that and what your thought is. I mean, one, your very existence underscores the fact that there are Palestinian trans people, (laughs) of course, just as a point of fact, (laughs) just as a point of fact. But this particular you know, charge that's used to, you know, block any further conversation and how you just take that. Like, why are you, you, shouldn't say anything anyway, because you wouldn't be allowed to exist if the state that you want for your people was, you know, allowed, fostered, whatever you want to say uh, to come into existence.
1: Well, this is first and foremost, I think in the hierarchy of the Western lens, right? Like it's to say that the Western ideology of quote unquote freedom is the right way for everybody when we know that Western ideology has subjugated and brutalized and genocided (laughs) the world and continues to and isn't necessarily the voice that we're all looking to represent us either, right? I mean, queer and trans Palestinians are calling on partners to refuse complicity with oppressors and to end pinkwashing. You know, we must reject colonial violence in all its forms. There's no pride in genocide, as we see this slogan in our queer trans Arab spaces being lifted up. There's needs to be an opportunity for the Palestinian people to have self-determination so that those of us from marginalized communities within that community can fight for our own cause, you know? Israel regularly tries to rebrand itself as queer-friendly in an effort to whitewash its ongoing violence against Palestinians. You know, they, they have a name for this campaign. It's called Brand Israel. It intentionally markets Israel as a gay-friendly country and tourism destination. I mean, it's not only harmful to Palestinians, it's disingenuous and false. You know, for instance, LGBTQ plus marriages aren't even legal in Israel. On that note, it's, you know, the United States isn't the safest place for transgender people either. We've seen the atrocities happening towards the trans community this year alone, you know, in the unfolding of, what, almost 500 bills that have been proposed in Congress. The United States is attacking transgender youth children, children, you know, in this country. There is isn't autonomy. I think that it is a propaganda tool resisting transphobia and homophobia means resisting colonialism and solidarity with indigenous peoples. You know, Marsha P. Johnson said it best, probably, you know, no pride for some of us without liberation for all of us.
0: Yeah. Just to clarify, I think it's 500 bills proposed across the, all of the state legislatures, but the point stands. Right. And we have new emerging bills in Congress, uh, particularly next year, which will be interesting to watch. Lastly, I'm wondering for you, how do you continue to get out of bed? What is the joy or the hope that you hold on to this moment? And people who hear me use that word might think it's strange, but I think that, you know, anyone who knows anything about Palestinian culture or Arab culture writ large is that, you know, even in the face of tremendous difficulty, there is still a celebration of life, right? Of music, of food, of so many things. So there has to be something that is inspiring you despite the loss that you and everyone that you know has experienced and continues to experience. And I'm wondering what that is. My grandfather,
1: to go back to him for a second, uh, ingrains a phrase in me since I was very, very young. And in Arabic, it's "makkul albi. And it means simply translated with all my heart. And his intention when he really instilled this phrase on me was that as a people, as individuals within our village, we must do everything with all of our heart. My ancestors, my elders, our people in the homeland who are currently getting massacred, The fire for life that you still see in them, the resounding hope that they have is certainly unprecedented. I I think that so many people are being impacted by watching these horrors, you know, that we can sit here and just watch in the palms of our hands and see the resilience of these people working as a community, as the Palestinian people working as a community to do everything that they can for each other and possibly the most horrific thing anyone could imagine for their lives. If the people in Gaza, if the people in the occupied West Bank can continue to stand up for each other, to fight for each other, to pick through the rubble, to hold one another up, it's our responsibility for humanity. It's our responsibility for the liberation of all to continue to do that in any way that they tell us to. And if that's to amplify the message, if that's to amplify the voice, if that's to create systems in which we can preserve, you know, for me specifically, the food ways of our people, then we all have a role to play in uplifting and upholding and preserving what our community is asking from us. And this pushes me through every day, this doing it with all of my heart, doing it for the village, doing it for the community, that we're stronger when we work as this intertwined historical function of a people to uplift each other, to demand a ceasefire, to demand the things that need to immediately happen and to make sure that we have the long-term goal, which is autonomy and self-determination on the periphery. And we're speaking about that as well. The greatest motivator is my people.
0: And your family members who are in the West Bank, do they still wake up believing that they have to speak up in the guidance of your grandfather with all their heart? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes, they do.
1: Obviously, we all know that there's consequences for existing as we are, right? Being Palestinian people, we are politicized, we are vilified, we are put into a corner just as we exist. So knowing that as we exist, whether we speak out or not, (laughs) there's a chance that there is oppression that lies around that regardless. So yes, absolutely. You know, they're the people as a collective and the purpose of standing up together supersedes any fears that any family has.
0: Marcel, thank you so much for joining us during a totally unimaginably excruciating time for you and the people that you love and you care about. I think I speak for everyone that we hope that the terrible violence ends as quickly as possible and that everyone is able to live in peace and dignity that all human beings deserve. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me truly such such an honor. Thank you so much. That was Marcel Aham, chef and advocate. so glad to be joined by magazine writer and author Jamie Lauren Kalis. You may have come across Jamie's whip-smart writing in publications like The New Yorker, Eater, and Vox. He was formerly a contributing writer at The New York Times Magazine, where he profiled Adam Sandler, explored the world of ASMR, and looked into the complications of phyloplasty for trans men. Jamie was one of the hundreds of people who signed an open letter from writers against the war on Gaza in October. The letter expressed solidarity with Palestinians and criticized mainstream coverage of the war. He later resigned from the New York Times alongside staff writer Jasmine Hughes. Jamie is also the administrator of the Instagram based trans oral history project, SexChange.tbt, where they share archival material from the 80s, 90s, And OOs. Last but not least, Jamie has also finished a book, The Third Person, a journalistic account of non binary identity in America that is set for publication in 2025. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me on. Of course, of course. It's so weird to think of like the early 2000s now as a source of archival material. I don't know how that's sitting with me right now, but I (laughs) just gotta live with it. Just gotta live with it. One of the things that I've heard you say about the current situation as it pertains to you personally and your own personal experience is that before October 7th, the situation in the occupied territories in Israel was not one that you had really focused on despite being Jewish yourself. And so I'm wondering if you can just tell us about that. What was kind of your relationship and what was your general understanding of the situation there?
2: I mean, prior to October 7th, I had thought about it quite a bit, but it was a long process of kind of moving from being a kid growing up in Pennsylvania in a relatively Zionist temple to the place where I was maybe two, three years ago, which is like on on the side of Palestinian liberation. Like if you grow up in America in Jewish institutions, like there's just an extremely high likelihood that a lot of different touch points in your whole education are going to be extremely Zionist, right? So like I went to a summer camp that wasn't like an explicitly Jewish summer camp or like a strongly Zionist summer camp, but it was just kind of in the air, right? Like you go to Israel, part of being Jewish is is visiting Israel and supporting Israel. I had a bat mitzvah, people plant trees in Israel. There's all these things leading up to like uh, when I was 18 years old, I went on birthright, right? So these things that are sort of operating in the background of your life to sort of normalize this situation in which... Millions of people are being kept in an open air prison. And when you're young, it's like you're sort of discouraged from thinking about it, right? Because, like, everyone says it's complicated, it's difficult. So, for me, like, when that began to fall apart, like, I probably made it to 19 years old. I went on birthright the summer after I graduated high school and I got to college. And, like, my parents are smart people, but they're not like intellectuals, they're not like huge readers about history. So, it wasn't really something we had ever talked about and i met a friend whose dad was a professor at yale and to me that like seemed extremely fancy like i went to their house they had the new yorker lying around to me it was like the most highbrow thing and i was like wow like i have access to this person who's like ostensibly like a really smart person right so i asked him like well why do jewish people need to have a country like why is that the format that this is being enacted in and he said never ask that question that's a ridiculous question like that's horrible how could you even insinuate that jewish people don't need a homeland so to me, like, it it wasn't like all of a sudden I was like free Palestine, but I was like, okay, it seems really ridiculous here that there's a question about this that's like not allowed to be asked. So from there, I just kind of spent the intervening years, like first just reading things like I read Joe Sacco's graphic novel, uh, I think it's called Palestine, and just like gradually in the background, kind of consuming information. And then as sort of like, I got older, obviously, it's like you start to have a more coherent political worldview. Hopefully, I mean, and, and some of mine was just thinking like, well, like if you're involved in like a fight for like the liberation of black people in America or for trans people, right? Like all these other things, like I just can't have a loophole in my moral conscience that says it's okay to justify like the, the occupation of all these people. Like it just doesn't square with any of the way I was thinking about anything else. So like it took a long time, but essentially like the, my childhood education just gradually fell apart as I came to see myself as like part of broader liberation struggles.
0: Yeah, of course, just to recap, Zionism is the ideology and religious worldview that Jewish people have a right to return to historical Palestine and to establish a state there which would be their own. One of the things that's really interesting in what you just said is reminding me of something that I've heard recently, which is many people such as Amy Schumer or Juliana Margulies prominent uh, Jewish actors in America have said that actually their support for Black Lives Matter is a painful point for them in this moment because they're saying oh there're lots of people of color who are not supportive of us in our hour of need but for you your own experience as a Jewish person who grew up in a Zionist household, it leads you to kind of a different place. And so I'm wondering when you hear people like them make those declarations, how do you square that? Because your understanding of support for Black and brown people in the United States leads you to a different place than them. Yeah. I mean,
2: there's just something so cynical and disgusting about it to me to be like, oh, my support for Black people in America was conditional on, the fact that I would eventually be cashing that check later because you're going to come support my, like, ethno-state in the Middle East. um, It just seems, like, ridiculous. And honestly, like, I look at these people and I, I go back and forth between being, like, well, are these celebrities, like, just fully indoctrinated by the thing that I felt myself to be indoctrinated by? Or are they evil? Or are they just really dumb, right? Like, I like a lot of celebrities, certainly, but, like, I don't unilaterally look to them for, like, my moral guidance, Yeah, it makes me really angry. Like, I saw something too, like, well, we support your pronouns, so like, why don't you support Jewish people? And there's so many things wrong there, right? Because it's like, well, first of all, it's not like trans people are being that broadly supported anyway. So you're saying it like we're in such a position of power. But then it's just this other thing where it's like, well, it's not a trade-off. It's either you believe something is right or you don't. And yeah, also there's just like this conflation of like, to support Jewish people is to support... Zionism, right? And like Judaism is like an extremely important part of my life. Like I light Shabbos candles. Like I'm not, it's not just a cultural identity. It's a religious identity for me as well. So like, it's not something I take lightly. And this idea that there's something that's like totally inextricable from Judaism that's like supporting this very specific political project. that's not even that old, right? Like there was a Judaism before Zionism and there will be a Judaism after Zionism. And the idea that those things are like inherently tied together, it just seems like such a misunderstanding, right? So when people say like, we supported Black Lives Matter, so why aren't you supporting Jewish people? It's like, well, I actually feel quite supported by people in other liberation movements. And like, just because those specific Jews have chosen to align themselves with this horrible project I just, I I don't know if that's a Jewish thing. That's like, they should be held to account for like supporting what I think is like a fascist political project.
0: There is something that keeps coming up and it's interesting, you, you touched upon it just then, where there's this invisibility around the possibility of intersectional trans identities. So I believe it was, was Juliana Margulies who said, oh, we support your pronouns, but it never occurred to her that there could be trans Jewish people who took a different position than she did it was almost this this segmenting of various identities and the same happens in reverse when you know queer muslims speak out people will say things like oh if you were you know in the region then you wouldn't be allowed to exist but not understanding that their very existence kind of diminishes the point that they're trying to make in terms of the Existence of intersectional identities. I'm wondering how that strikes you as a person who, as you said, as a religious Jew who is trans.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, I can only really speak directly to the Jewish side of things, but like, there are so many trans Jewish men and trans women, honestly, that become rabbis. Like, It's like sort of a joke at this point in the community where everyone's like, there's always a trans guy around trying to tell you about like the 10 biblical genders in the Torah or whatever. So it's like, it's not like we're a small and not vocal group. Like there's just a lot of trans Jews. Yeah, I mean, first it just betrays like a real lack of familiarity with like the level that people can be having this conversation at. But yeah, also I just think it's cynical because it's like, okay, let's even say that like, I don't think Palestinian people are like any more transphobic than people anywhere else. But like, let's even just say they were so transphobic and they hated trans people. I still wouldn't support a genocide. Like in America, people are transphobic all the time. And my response is not to say, let's murder all of them, right? Like I walk around, people call me a faggot on the street. I'm not like we should genocide their people. So like, there there's just all this stuff where I'm just like, the level of response is so insane. And then there's just like the question of like, Well, are Palestinians transphobic? Well, a lot of evidence points to no, but then also like their lives in Palestine are being held under such horrible conditions where it's like these questions of identity sort of are subsidiary to like questions of basic survival now, right? So like when people like Juliana Margulies speak from this position where they're saying like, oh, like Palestinians would use your head like a football. I'm kind of just like, what are you talking about? Like, be serious, like, These are people that are fighting for their lives. They're not really asking if like, because like I'm kind of a weird looking guy, like would they be rude to me if I came to their house? Like it's just so many degrees down from like the level of the situation. And I think it's a huge distraction to try to like derail what is ultimately like quite a successful movement for Palestinian liberation that's emerging in America right now.
0: The events of October 7th and the resulting war have impacted you directly in terms of your career. Not only in terms of your personal identity and family members that you would have in Israel. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us why you decided to sign the letter which expressed solidarity with Palestinians generated by various writers across the United States. Like, what led you to do that? Because I can't imagine that you did it not believing or even perhaps thinking about the fact that there might be consequences.
2: Yeah, so it starts with frustrations about my relationship with the times that date back to the trans letter. I don't know if you remember that. I'm sure it mm-hmm. came across your desk. Um, oh, I'm going
0: to ask you about okay. it.
2: <laughs> but yeah, so I guess just to back up and give a little bit of like my history with the times, like I've been working there on a contract or just purely as a freelancer in various capacities for, I think it was nine years and I was never a W-2 employee, right? I'm a 1099 worker, but I have a contract. So like, I'm most of my income most years was coming from writing for the New York Times magazine. And I don't historically write about trans stuff or Palestine. I do a lot of celebrity coverage, a lot of culture stuff. But there's not a lot of trans people that work at the New York Times. And there's especially not a lot of trans people that are public-facing employees in the New York Times, right? Like I know people that work in editorial stuff or they work on the tech side of things. But if you Google like trans writer New York Times, I think I'm the person who comes up. So this letter started going around about trans stuff. And like, I didn't think it was a perfect letter and it's not exactly how I would have signed it. But like, if there's a letter about criticizing trans coverage, which I do think their coverage is like pretty shoddy. Basically, I feel as like one of the people doing writing at the New York Times who is trans, I like have to put my name on it, whether or not I think it's the perfect letter or not. And part of that too is just like, I don't work there, right? I'm a 1099 employee, even though they're paying me a salary, like they don't give me benefits. So anyway, I signed that letter and they said, you can't sign this letter. And I said, well, I appreciate your opinion, but I don't work here. So if you want me to not sign letters, you have to hire me. That kind of spawned us what I felt to be a somewhat cynical DEI informed thing of like, let's have a bunch of meetings to try to give you a job and no job ever came out of it and whatever. It was frustrating. But I said, at the end of the day, I'm just not going to change my behavior because if the letter comes around and I think it's right, I'm going to sign it. So all this tension is building up in the back of my mind. And then obviously the Writers Against the War on Gaza letter circulates. And I'm like, well, I agree with what it's saying. I think it's really important that the coverage in the New York Times be accurate. And also that we use the voices of Palestinian journalists who are on the ground doing this work to get accurate information out of like within a system that is extremely like disincentivized to like listen to their information. Right. Like so much of how the New York Times covers Palestine is basically just transcribing things that the Israeli Defense Force sends. So I put my name on the letter and knowing on some level that probably there was going to be some amount of retribution. And then a couple of days later, Jasmine Hughes and I went to speak to a class at Columbia University. And we spent a lot of times complaining about just like how frustrating it is to work for the New York Times and have to answer for the sort of what is becoming low quality journalism, whether it's on like the issue of Palestine or trans stuff or the Tom Cotton letter that went around a few years ago against uh, the 2020 protests. So all these things were just kind of like becoming a headache. And I left the talk and I was just like, why do I work here? Like, I'm not getting health care benefits. I can get a job somewhere else, hopefully, or I could go work in another field. So basically, I decided to resign somewhat quietly because of that. But then when Jasmine was sort of pushed to resign and denied her union representation, she and I are really good friends. And I just found that to be so frustrating that I was like, okay, like we should talk about this publicly because like our personal grievances against the New York Times, I just think there are significant labor issues here, right, about like having clear expectations for like what are workers allowed to say and what is the relation between a 1099 employee and an institution because like this happens to affect me now as someone that's like sitting at the intersection of these two conflicts. But like it's a broader industry-wide issue that I think will come for a lot more people over time if we don't fix it.
0: You took me to my next question, which is why now, right? Why not have resigned earlier in the year after the letter came out or knowing the way in which the Times' coverage of trans people has been used to legitimize and pass anti-trans legislation over the past year, which we know does real harm. But it seems like what happened is that this just was a bridge too far when it is, you know actual people and actual lives that you can see and experience uh, combined with the stand taken by Jasmine that that just tips you over,
2: yeah. I mean, the weird thing is within the magazine, I felt extremely well supported by my editors and encouraged if I wanted to write about trans stuff, like to do that, right? So like I got the phalloplasty story through pitching. I felt pretty well supported. I was able to like recruit a huge amount of resources to focus on covering this thing that didn't get coverage. So, like, there is good trans journalism that occasionally gets produced within the infrastructure of the New York Times. There's just all this other horrible journalism that also gets put out. I think the fact that I wasn't willing to leave over the trans stuff was a little bit like, oh, I actually am, like, able to take the resources of this institution and put them towards things that I'm interested in or, like, journalism that I think should be done. Then, as soon as I started writing a book, like, I'm working on a book about trans people, right? So Part of it is just that, like, When I started calling people on the phone to interview them, the reputation of the New York Times in the eyes of trans people has become so low that I'd have to justify at the beginning of every single phone call, like, why should I as a trans person want to talk to someone that works at the New York Times? And like, I could usually make my case of like, well, like, not just that I'm another trans person, because like, I don't think we all have to automatically trust each other. But I also think the coverage is bad. And at some point, I think just like the Palestine letter besides just signing it because it was right, like the the thing of just feeling like your own line of sort of like, well, what is the baseline? Like, what is the objective position? I started to lose the ability to like interpolate the New York Times was thinking about it, right? Like the things that I were seeing as like objective truths were just getting to be further and further from what the institution would allow to be written about. And I just thought it was like becoming an impediment to doing quality work.
0: What's been the response since you have resigned? What's been the response of your colleagues? What's been the response of other people that you know? And what's been most unexpected?
2: Yeah, so I I haven't been surprised by the huge amount of support and inquiries I've got from other journalists who are currently working at The Times saying, here's all these reasons why I feel really trapped here and unsupportive, right? Muslim employees, people that cover conflict in the Middle East, Other queer people, people that are working in the institution and, like, for whatever reason can't leave at the moment, but ultimately would like to. I feel really fortunate that I'm also working on a book. So, like, I have a little bit of money to leave my job right now, right? But, like, not everyone can turn on a dime and, like, take some kind of stance against the place they work because, like, they got to pay the bills. So, that part really didn't surprise me because when you work there and if you're someone that, like, Complains about the New York Times, you very quickly meet all the other people that are like, wow, I would really love to be able to like do good journalism for a huge platform, and there's all these institutional impediments that I'm constantly facing. Even though there's like so much horrible journalism and so much just, just all the framing of the way that the plight of the Palestinian people is being covered is so low quality. But I've been really heartened by the way that like people that work in the media have come together around this and things like Writers Against the War on Gaza or the work being done by the National Writers' Union and sort of like the inter-industry solidarity with people working in academia, right? Like though the Zionist side of things is fairly well organized. I think what we're seeing now is like the labor organizing that has happened in media over maybe the past five years. It's really starting to pay off because now there's an infrastructure for people when they have widespread problems with the industry to come together and not just be like a single isolated voice complaining, but be like, oh, wow, we're workers and we actually have power here. So that's been really heartening. But yeah, I don't know, mostly I'm just like, outside of kind of like the labor situation, I'm just extremely depressed. Like everyone everyone else I know who's following the news and like every day more and more Palestinian journalists are killed and like those are our colleagues, right? Not to like foreground journalists as more important than anyone else, but like it's sort of the most direct point of contact I have with the with sort of like, wow, like someone that's doing the same work as me over there is being killed for it. And it's just extremely depressing to think about. And then on top of that, just the whole idea that as a Jew, I'm in some way tied up or complicit in this. Like, it's just a horrible time to be alive. And I just, I don't know. It's really depressing.
0: To your point, I mean, 63 journalists have been killed since the war began, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, uh, 63 journalists and media makers. And I think that overall, because of this war, there have been one of the highest levels of recorded deaths and violence against journalists in any year on record. I am wondering for you, as you've said, you are religious and there are key practices and beliefs of your faith that you enact and enable and that sustain you. And I am wondering if you can just share with us either a key teaching or a key idea or a key ritual from Judaism, which sustains you in this moment of feeling depressed and isolated and marginalized as a result of this? What from your religious teaching is sustaining you in this moment?
2: I I mean, at this moment, not a lot. Like I have a lot of anger at God. I think it's like when I think about sort of my personal relation to God on the day to day, it gets me through a lot of personal issues to say like I'm being taken care of in some way, or like there are things that are unknowable, but when it comes to like these situations in which you're so powerless, like I can't say that I have anything. Like I'm just like pretty fucking bummed out. I I think a lot about just like the fact that there was a Judaism before Zionism. Right. And that like, maybe not my great-great-grandparents, but other people's great-great-grandparents were like labor organizers or communists or in the Bund or whatever. There's all these different sort of Jews throughout history that like didn't see a Jewish state in the Middle East as the path to like Jewish integration in society or the protection of the Jewish people or Jewish continuity or all these different things, right? Like there were moments in time in which this was not the inevitable way forward. And like there's a personal connection to it through Judaism, but like, I feel much more invested in it as part of just, like, a person in the plight for global solidarity. And just, like, as sort of my the mainstream Jewish community pushes anti-Zionist Jews further and further out, like, it just becomes a lot easier to see yourself as part of, like, a, a global fight for liberation than it does to see yourself as part of the Jewish community. And, like, I hope that will change, right? Because, like, in all these spaces, there's tons and tons of Jews I never experienced as an anti-Semitic place. I think there's, like, a bit of an overfixation, right? Like, with some of the stuff like, Jewish Voice for Peace, or you have all these good, like, explicitly Jewish organizations, but, like, it's not the stuff where I see myself in this fight, because, like, so much of it depends on being able to mobilize, like, a certain vision of, like, white, upper-middle-class Judaism as, like, the voice of moral clarity, and, like, I just don't think that's where we should be centering the fight around, though I'm happy for the work they've been doing in this movement. So, like, the tools of Judaism have failed me a bit in this moment, and, like, I have sort of the tools of solidarity, and I hope at some point there will be, like, a Judaism in the future that is like giving me tools to struggle with this, but it's just not where I'm at personally now and and I'm not speaking on behalf of all Jews because I know there's a lot of people that have like their ritualistic practice is is bringing them through this, but mine is certainly not
0: one of the things that's said to dismiss Jews like you is that oh, you all are just confused, you're brainwashed you are disconnected from your Judaism and Israel, and that's why you're not in support of the current war. And I'm wondering, what do you say to that? Because that's something that you hear often, that, oh, Jews who don't support the war are, are somehow confused or brainwashed.
2: Yeah, I think it's this double standard, right? Where, like, when you're drawing the circle of who's Jewish enough to move to Israel, they're like, any Jew can come here. Like, this is the place for you. It's your birthright to colonize this land. But then all of a sudden, when I have opinions about it, it's like, actually, your Jewish status is conditional and you're not Jewish enough. And it's funny because, like, I've talked to other Jews who feel this way, and like I had a conversation with someone, a relative the other day, and I said, well, I do believe in God. And like, that's a big part of my Judaism. And he said, well, how could you believe in God at a time like this when Jews are being killed in Israel? Right. And and he sees almost support for Israel as more important to Judaism than belief in God, which is sort of the the core thing of all these quote unquote Abrahamic religions, right? Like it's about have, believing in one God or I don't know. It's so, like, there's all these different things. Like What makes someone a Jew? But, like, to me, it just seems totally absurd to be, like, the thing that is the most important about Judaism is supporting Israel. And actually, like, belief in God is the thing that is optional. And, like, I'm willing to concede that, like, belief in God might be optional, but I'm not willing to accept that belief in Israel is mandatory, right?
0: Well, I know that this is quite clearly, as you say, a really wrenching time for you and i just appreciate the time that you have given us today to discuss some really really hard things and as we're recording this we are just beginning hanukkah and i just hope that somehow the light of hanukkah finds you in this really really dark moment
2: thank you and uh, thank you for taking the time to put together an episode on this i'm really excited to listen to all the other people you have
0: on thank you so much that was author Jamie Lauren Kalis. Thank you for joining me on the Translash podcast. Now listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on the web at translash.org to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Follow us on X and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends and family. The Translash podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash and Aubrey Calloway. Sander Adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer. Brennan Beckwith is our social media producer. And Digital Strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. Translash Podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. Okay, what am I looking forward to? Well... Given everything that we've been speaking about in this podcast, of course, it's the small things that matter. So I am looking forward to getting my Christmas nails done. I will be getting my Christmas nails done um, over the weekend. It's quite a process, but will be worth it. And I'll be sure to post pictures on my Instagram stories. But Christmas nails, that's what I got.